Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of History Matters. I'm your co-host, Patrick Wyman, joined as always by uh, my venerable co-host here, Dr. Keith Climbers. We are once again recording from my living room on a lovely Thursday morning here. Been a while since we were both together doing this. Yeah, it's good to be back together. I feel like I've been talking to a lot of other people, and now I get to talk to you again. It's Dude, great. It's, it's good to be chatting. It's good to be chatting. I wish we had a beer in our hands, but alas, it's a Thursday morning. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you do what you can on that front. Yeah, Mountain Dew and water will have to suffice, I guess. It's Diet Mountain Dew. <laughs> Diet Mountain Dew. I'm watching my aspartame consumption. Thank you. Um <laughs> But yeah, so here we are. We The topic we have for you today is going to be narratives. So this is something that we've touched on tangentially over the course of the show a number of different times, especially when we talked about progress in the first episode, and we talked about kind of implicitly political breakdown and crisis in our second episode. Um, it's something that's come up at various points since then. Globalization, we kind of touched on it. Um, but now I think it's time for us to deal with the topic explicitly. So uh, we're going to talk about narratives on two different fronts. We're going to talk about um, the art of narrative writing in history and the kind of larger scale effects of how narratives function, what narratives we choose to emphasize and what we have to gain and lose by using them. Yeah, exactly. And I think those two structure or those two different types of narrative are really key because in the most simple way, narrative is just telling a story in which you take a set of events and you put them in a sequence and you explain how they all go together. So you could tell a narrative about how your day went. On the one hand, this doesn't seem very controversial or even very interesting, right? I woke up, I ate cereal, I biked over here, now we're doing a podcast. On the other hand, it's not a complete story of everything that happened, right? If you were to get just a camera that sat behind me all morning, one, you'd be very bored, and two... It would be different than that story I just told you in some ways. You could perhaps come up with your own story about what happened. So in part, narrative is a way of making an argument about what's important, about what drives change, about what really matters. But it's subtle in some ways because those kinds of arguments are put into the form of telling a story, of talking about things in a sequence in a way that feels natural, right? Like it just makes sense. Yeah, that's the whole, that's both the benefit and the drawback of narrative is that it's the form with which we are most familiar. We, we are surrounded by narrative at, at all points and all times. Narrative is what advertisers use to sell, use to, sell to us. Uh, narrative is what public relations people put out there. It's what politicians use, the kind of stories that they tell about themselves and about the world as a whole. Um, they're the stories that we see on TV. They're the stories that we see in movies. They're what we read in books. They're what we read in, in magazine articles. Narrative is all around us at all places and all times, whether we realize it or not. And, and narrative, I mean, it plays an important role in the way that we see ourselves, right? Like what, what events in our lives do we choose to put emphasis on? When you tell the story of, you know, what did you do last weekend? What do you pick out? You're, you are crafting a narrative at all times, right? And now historical narratives are of a piece with that. We, they should seem natural and yet they're not. Yeah. They're not natural in part because when you tell a story about what happened, you're drawing on your own memories, which are going to be partial, blinkered, constrained in various ways, but at least they're yours. At least you have the kind of experience that gives it a real feeling. I think when you're telling a historical narrative, in part, we have to rely on 
generally speaking, stuff that people wrote down. Occasionally we'll add in other things like material evidence, either visual things like paintings or sculpture or things that archaeologists dig up. But then we try to tell a story without having actually been there, but one that should feel like the way you're describing last weekend. Yeah, and you can see the kind of inherent problem with that, right? That if we're dependent upon the perspectives of people in the past who had their, who brought their own limitations and biases, their own sense of what to include and what not to include um, in those stories. This is especially a problem, I think, for uh, ancient history and medieval history, where what survives is disproportionately going to be history writing. Like, and those were people who had their own ideas about what was important to include in narratives. So when we try to build a second order narrative out of those already existing narratives, you can see how that becomes an issue. But then let's say we get a little bit later and you're dealing with scattered documents, you're dealing with wills and records of transactions and account books and, uh, and charters and, <clears throat> You know, things of that nature, like the vast uh, array of source material that becomes available to us the later that we go, then how do you draw a coherent story out of these disparate founts of information? Yeah, and this has been a huge debate historians have been having for a long time. On the one hand, you have some people who say, well, you pick out people who are important and you follow their story. So one way to organize a narrative is to say, this person is important either because they held a position of power or they did something, and then you make them your central character, and everything moves because of them. And I think that's one of the ways in which narrative history has been frequently criticized, that it becomes a story of great, most often men, though not exclusively, and you say, okay, Pat did something heroic today, and that that explains everything that happened. Or you tell stories of kings and queens, right, rather than bigger things. This is the form of historical narrative with which you're probably most familiar. This is the story of history that has generally gotten told in elementary schools and middle schools and high schools, um, less so now than maybe it was when we were at that age, or and certainly less than it was 50 years ago. But I think it's still the dominant mode of kind of popular historicizing that exists out there. Yeah. And honestly, if you think about the way that people talk about presidents, That's a really great example of how these kind of personal narratives work. Kennedy did X, LBJ did Y, Reagan did Z, whichever it's going to be, you end up having this one lone individual rather than, say, the mass anonymous bureaucracy of the U.S. government and broader forces, whether they be environmental or economic or social or geopolitical. Instead, you have individuals whose unique personal agency is defining the course of human events. Yeah, it's the, it is literally great man history. Almost exclusively yeah. men. Almost yeah. exclusively for the presidency, men. it mm-hmm. is literally yeah. great man history. Nothing yeah. else. So so yeah, and so the presidency is a great example of this that when we think about the story of American history, not just because it comes in handy four or eight year chunks, mm-hmm. um, but because it's an easy shorthand for everything else that was happening at the time. So I mean, when you think about the history of the Roman Empire, it's oftentimes told through the personal characteristics of the people who held the imperial office. That is, that is the most common way of approaching the history of the Roman Empire. It's the most common way of approaching medieval history. Um, think about the history of the early modern period. It's told as Louis the Fourteenth, uh, Charles the First, um, you know, Louis the Sixteenth. You can, yeah. and the narratives can go in a lot of different directions. Napoleon. They can be heroic or tragic. They can be about vice or virtue, but it. In 
people's personal characteristics become the defining feature of an age and the forces that shape human events. And that's one of the places where historians have been really critical, is that we've said this form tends to create stories that focus on individuals. Now, some people have said the way to correct that is change your individuals. So you write the type of stories in which individual human agency is really critical, but it's not now about presidents or kings or queens or emperors. Instead, you say it's about a middling bureaucrat, say uh, Jean-Baptiste Colbert in France. So rather than say the story of French absolutism, Versailles, you don't talk about Louis XIV. Instead, you talk about Colbert. I just read uh, a really fantastic history of a uh, of a country merchant um, living between who was operating between like 1495 and 1520 on the this and it was a micro history on the basis of his account book and so that's that is another narrative that you can draw is the story uh, a story of a single person living in a particular time in a particular place that you localize and then you make them a locus for the historical forces that are kind of swirling around them yeah and it doesn't just have to be biography you could Mm -hmm. also do it for something like say the enlightenment in Mm -hmm. which you say here's this group of people the narrative is questioning of old ideas challenging the authority of the church and ushering in an age of reason that we're still living with today or not whatever the whole point of the narrative there is that it's it's moved beyond just a single individual and you end up with a story in which still a lot of individuals but you have this kind of movement of ideas now it's this set of ideas that becomes the critical force driving history but at the same time you use this enlightenment story in the 18th century to talk about the purging out of superstition, the creation of democracy and liberal capitalism, free trade, things like that. You have these stories happening. And it, so it's, it doesn't just have to be biography. It can also yeah. be slightly beyond that as well. Yeah. So it's th- those are all possibilities. And what they give us in the grand scheme of things are large scale stories that we tell about the past. Right. Like the these stories can be things like the fall of the Roman Empire the rise of the nation state, um, the rise of capitalism. Um, I mean, what are some other good examples of this? Like the, the Enlightenment is a fantastic one. Yeah, the Enlightenment is a fantastic one, but you could talk about globalization and the rise of the Atlantic world or globalization later on. You could talk about technology as a driving force and you could create big narratives in which new technologies create change. So you go from the printing press to the steam engine, to the automobile, to the airplane, to the internet, mm-hmm. right? And you can tell a story, a huge story about history in which the main force that becomes critically important in everything happening is shifts in charismatic technology. You could tell, or you could tell a story. So that that would be one story of the rise of the modern world, right? Yeah. That would be one domina- dominating narrative there. You could also tell a story about the rise of the modern world that is almost entirely economic, that yeah. focuses on the rise of institutions in late medieval Europe that gave rise to particular forms of association and organization that give you capital accumulation, which can then be invested in other larger scale ventures on and on and on and on until that capital accumulation gives you the steam engine and the industrial revolution 
and everything that gives you the internet. That would be and and 21st century late capitalism. That that is one story of the rise of the modern world that's an economic one in which technology plays a role but it is subordinate to institutions, structures and other kind, and other forms of development. Yeah. But you can, I mean, you can have big stories about things like race and racism. You can have big stories about things like gender. So within women's and gender history, there have been a lot of big narratives that have competed. On the one hand, you had this idea of a golden, of a lost golden age in which you had more gender equal societies and slowly they were eroded over time, creating a patriarchal state. Coming out of that, then you have other competing stories with that in which you have history almost as kind of a waveform in which you have the lost golden age, the trough in which things get really bad, and then a slow rise of liberty and equality. You have people who reject that for various reasons. Within environmental history, uh, declensionist narratives are really, really popular, especially in popular ideas about human interactions with the natural world. The idea that once we used to live in harmony or more harmony, and ever since then we've engaged in increasingly wide scales of destruction. So these are big narratives too. And in some ways we've jumped into a second category here, and I think that's critical. Because on the one hand we have narrative as a storytelling technique, but now we've jumped into big narratives, which are both about using a particular sequence of events and trying to create stories about change over time, but also underpinning all of them are questions of method. Mm-hmm. So to create these big stories, you need an underlying set of theories. You need ideas about how you go about finding information, how you go about analyzing that. And so between just telling a story about what we did last weekend up to how the modern world was created, how Rome fell, whether or not we're living in a long-term environmental decline, things like that. That's where theory and things become different. And that's where so much of the controversy between historians and among historians has occurred. In in large sense, in big senses, this is about causality. What do you think matters? What drives long-term large-scale patterns of change in societies? Um, in human society as a whole, in, in a country, in a region, whatever. Like, in large part, that's what this is about. Um, now I want to come back to the idea of narrative writing, though, mm-hmm. because I think this is one thing where it's fair to criticize historians as a whole is that as we are trained, we are not taught to write narrative in any meaningful way. We are not taught the tricks of doing that well. Or how to appeal to an audience or how to, or how to engage an audience with a narrative form. Historians are crude in the grand scheme of people who use narrative for various purposes from fiction writers to TV writers to, to, uh, to, to whatever, um, to even like people who do narrative nonfiction. Like historians are at the low end of the scale, generally speaking, for skill with the narrative form. Like narrative is not a natural thing. You need to be taught to use it. You need to be taught to write it. Because it is difficult. Like, it's difficult to do it well. Um, Yeah, though I think it is a natural thing, right? In part, whenever we tell stories, we're creating narratives. It's just think about when you talk to your friends, a lot of the time they tell boring stories. Okay, so, so let me, yes, it is, it is a natural thing. Let me, let me clarify what I mean. To put a, to put a historical narrative of great or small size into some sort of coherent order that tells a compelling and evident, and evidentiarily, evidentiary, 
sound based on sound evidence god jesus christ i can't even talk um to tell a story that makes sense that is compelling to a reader that draws a reader in and that at the same time is based on sound evidence and historical method is not a natural act no no i don't think it is and in part that's okay this is one of the difficulties i think methodologically is and stylistically as well We've come to question a lot of those great man histories about how things happen. In some way, those narratives were easy, right? Go and read the papers, which were often fairly abundant, of Louis XIV or James I, Charles I, whoever. Pick, pick your big important leader. And then you talk about conflicts they had that they expressed in letters, diaries. You talk about who they talk to, you tell stories that center around them. When you try to tell a broader narrative or one that doesn't center on an individual, it can get more difficult. One of the things that I think historians have really struggled with, as we've said, and and I've sat through a lot of conferences now where people have said, we need to go back to narrative. That's how we're going to reach a broad public. But as you said, there's a lot of people doing narrative and doing it well. Frequently, when I've heard historians talk about this, there's always a hint that narrative means dumbing it down. That narrative Mm -hmm. means excluding choices and narrowing down to a single path. And I just don't think that's right. I mean, think about TV that people like. Think about films people like. Think about a novel. How many TV shows are just a plotting recitation of plot? Not that many. Some are. Yeah, because Some generally speaking, there is a narrative, there is a standard for what makes for a good narrative in TV or movies. I, and below that point, those things generally don't get made because they're, because they're, they're bad. Like, yeah. there's, there's a, an, a, a broad awareness of what makes, for, of what makes for good TV or good movies because they have a sense for what a good narrative in that sense looks like. Yeah, and the best ones, though, are able to play with some of those genres. Think about something like the police procedural. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In some way, you always know what's going to happen. It doesn't matter if it's in Chicago, in London, set it anywhere. Or Western. You have a rough sense of how these things are going to go. But the best ones, the most creative ones, are either able to open up lots of possibilities and play with you and trick you and keep you from just getting complacent, or they completely upend these forms that we think of as the only way events can move forward. I think historians, as we're beginning to talk more about narrative now, are struggling with this sense of, I must tell a story in which only one thing happens, in which I'm constraining down the set of possibilities, possibly to just one, and trying to figure out, okay, look, there are novelists who have multiple narrative threads (laughs) that sometimes intersect and sometimes don't. There's... TV shows in which you have blind alleys and and false turns and all these things that people are interested in and manage to tolerate in fairly large numbers. Yeah, whatever you think about Game of Thrones, the fact that there are multiple narratives going on at any given time in the TV show and in the books, that and that there is a large audience of viewers and readers who are capable of keeping up with those strands, more or less... Should tell, I mean, within within reason. Should and about tell, six million blogs to help them should they fall yeah, behind. Should tell historians that, no, you don't have to just tell a single story. Like, you can play with narrative in interesting ways. You can tell over the course of a book a, a 
kind of a coherent narrative. And then within each individual chapter, you can tell multiple different competing narratives. Yeah. And like, there are ways to play with the narrative form that historians, frankly, have not been conditioned to do because our discipline is, has not been incentivized to teach or to value the art of narrative writing of history. Yeah. That's that. I mean, I say this with love to, to all of our fellow historians out there, but with some rare exceptions, that is not a skill that's possessed in spades because, and, and for reasons that make perfect sense in an institutional, in an institutional sense. Yeah. Like, so, um, so kind of, I think that's where we'll leave the first segment here. And when we come back, we'll talk about some concrete narratives, um, in the small and the large scale, uh, to, to try and bring this down, uh, try and bring this down into something more concrete. And we are back. In this segment, we're going to talk, as I attempted to do very poorly at the end of the last segment, we're going to talk about some concrete examples of big historical narratives, how historians have talked about them, and some of the benefits and drawbacks of using them. So, Keith, you wanted to start with the 17th century. Is that right? Yeah. So I study the 17th century, and it's an interesting period to study in part because for a long time, it didn't make any sense. So I've often said I'm an early modern historian, and if you go to course listings and look at book titles, you'll see early modern all over the place. But it didn't always exist. It's relatively recent. Before that, you had the Renaissance and Reformation, and then the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. And so if you just think about those in crude chronological terms, for the Renaissance, you get the 15th century. For the Reformation, you get the 16th century. For the Enlightenment and French Revolution, or the Age of Revolutions, you get the 18th century. There's something missing there, and it's the 17th. So what's the point? For some people, they studied individual royal dynasties or things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, so would the, would the answer to that be the, that you call the 17th century then the Age of Absolutism? Is that, in kind of a broad sense, how you would get around that 100-year gap? I mean, that's one way mm -hmm. people have chosen to do so, although the... The absolutist that they're most concerned with, Louis the Fourteenth, usually winds up kind of bleeding into the 18th century. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you wind up then creating something. Historians love having long centuries, often to the point of near absurdity. So you can have a long 18th century that takes up half the 17th century. But the point of doing that is, even though it sounds a bit ridiculous to have an 18th century that goes from 1650 to 1850... <laughs> is that you say the 18th century is the critical thing. That is the time period in which the critical things happen, and you're explaining uh, the prologue and the epilogue with those 50-year periods that you've uh, pinched off of the preceding and following centuries. So that's one way it works. The other one, and this is the one that I want to focus on a bit, is that as you had Marxism push further as a animating theory for doing history, the 17th century became critical as a point of crisis. So in Marxist thinking, you have big structures that are determined by a socio-political or a socio-economic base in which you have modes of production, all that stuff, but you have these structures of economic life that are critically important 
And within them, there's contradictions. That's what Marx liked to push for. The idea that there's always going to be tensions in these things. And then there's going to be moments of crisis in which those tensions explode. And maybe the system copes with the crisis and moves ahead. And maybe the crisis breaks it. So the 17th century as a moment of crisis became a critical narrative in which feudal society, as Marx would put it, falls apart and then capitalism emerges. So the 17th century now becomes important to people because it's the moment when feudalism goes away, when it has its final crisis and it dies, and in which capitalism emerges. So there's a case in which you have this small narrative of the 17th century crisis that is set into a larger narrative, which is the movement from a feudal society to a capitalist society. The big narrative is very explicitly animated by a kind of theoretical and philosophical principle, that of Marxism, but it goes down into the way that historians tell stories. And you have different national versions, uh, whether it is the Civil War in England, whether it's the Thirty Years' War in Germany, whether it is uh, inflation in Spain... There's a lot of ways you can tell it, but the thing that made it make sense for a long time to people was this underpinning Marxism. As people have challenged that underpinning philosophy, the 17th century crisis has gotten a bit weird. So if it's not a crisis in which capitalism emerges, if capitalism because, was kicking around yeah, beforehand, because how can you how can you have capitalism emerging in the 17th century if there are good little proto-capitalists running around as early as the 12th century in Europe, or you have uh, like pretty fully formed capitalistic enterprises at the begin at the opening of the 16th century and fully developed credit markets operating by the middle of the 16th century? Like yeah, how can you have the emergence of capitalism? Like if there's Outside of kind of reimposed feudal conditions in Eastern Europe, feudalism is dying, is is deader than a doornail by the middle of the 16th century. Feudalism, which at least a few medievalists would say only existed in a very few number of places mm -hmm. to begin with, right? So this yeah. is where we talked about some of the problems with huge narratives. The good thing about the huge narrative that Marx gave that people have worked with for a long time is that it gives you a pretty clear schematic for how to understand movement and change. The bad thing about his big narrative is that it's wrong in a number of yeah, ways. Yeah, it's wrong in a lot of particulars. <laughs> yeah. Basically every particular. Yeah. If you uh, look at it hard enough. And so that's sort of the issue. However, as people have pushed at some of that, they've wanted to keep the crisis around. So even if they reject feudalism, even if they say, well, capitalism emerged beforehand and stuck around afterwards, you have historians who want to say, well, no, the 17th century still does matter. We, we shouldn't just be kind of split up for parts into a long 16th and a long 18th century. We, we deserve to exist in our own right uh, as 17th century historians. It matters in and of itself. And crisis has been a persistent way that people have tried to do that. But without that kind of Marxist underpinning, they've really sort of struggled to figure it out. A historian named Jeffrey Parker has recently tried to make sense of it by putting it in the context of climate change. So you have something called the Little Ice Age, which is a period of global cooling that tends to particularly affect Northwest Europe. 
you effects are felt elsewhere in the world, but it's more of a localized phenomenon than I think some of the people who first identified it called it as. But so Parker wants there to be a 17th century crisis, and he wants climate change rather than this kind of structural economic, political, and social transition. Marx had, he wants to say, no, the 17th century matters. It's important, but it's important because it shows the big threat of a changing climate to human societies. So even there, you can see how the big narratives that things are put in start to shift. On the one hand, you have one that's grounded in huge Marxist socioeconomic structures. On the other hand, you have one that is grounded in the threat of a changing climate. So how these things are going to play out is really kind of an intriguing question uh, and and one that historians fight over, but a lot have decided to reject it altogether and say, we're going to talk about the 17th century, but it doesn't matter if there's a crisis. It doesn't matter. We're just going to talk about the 17th century and we're not going to make reference to any of these bigger things. Mm-hmm. We're rather going to which, talk about something else. Yeah, which has which has its benefits because it allows you to treat that period on its own terms rather than terms that are imposed from outside. But it has a drawback in that how then do you justify the study of these things without reference to broader trends in, in, in history? Like, yeah. If it's not a crisis, if it's not a turning point between... Um, major socioeconomic shifts, then what, then what is the justification for it? Why does it matter? Yeah. And that becomes particularly important for people like you, the listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, as much as I think I'm fascinating in every way, and I'm sure you do too, that might not actually translate. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yeah. not. Uh, that might not actually translate into someone buying a book. Yeah. Right. Or someone listening or, to a lecture. Yeah. Or yeah, just being invested in the topic that you're that you're spending so much time and energy working on. Right. Like that's and that's this is something that we'll come back to in the third segment. And that's a nice segue into the fall of the Roman Empire, which like you know that seems like a like a self evidently important and existing thing. Like that there was a Roman Empire and then there wasn't. Right. Well. Ladies and gentlemen, do I have some news for you? So, yeah, this seems like this seems like a self-evident historical phenomenon that, you know, in the year 400, there was a Roman Empire in the West. And in the year 500, there was not a Roman Empire in the West. Well, OK, so I think that the Roman Empire fell. Um, I think it's both obvious that it did. And that was a, a series of, of meaningful things that happened in different ways in different places at different times. But there are a whole lot of historians who would say that, A, either the Roman Empire never fell in any meaningful sense, or B, the fact that it did is not important. So so let's break this down a little bit. Now, there are a couple of different objections to, to this. So one is to say that if you say that the Roman Empire fell, that is a political narrative that deals mostly with high politics that was not really important to the way that people lived their lives, that, um, lo- that it was more than anything else a reification of the kind of local and regional trends that had already been going on for a long time, that had always bubbled beneath the surface of the Roman Empire, um, that the Roman state was not that important to begin with, that there, there are a lot of different objections to the overarching narrative of the fall of the Roman Empire, that it imposes a totality on a disparate array of processes, things that happened in much different ways in different places at different times, that 
you know, to say the fifth century was when the Roman Empire fell, well, yeah, it definitely did in Britain and in northern Gaul, but if you lived in southern Gaul, you might not have noticed much of a difference. If you lived in North Africa, once you'd gotten used to the Vandals being there, life may have actually been better than it had been beforehand because you weren't shipping, you know, a ton of taxes uh, to uh, to Italian aristocrats. Um, if you lived in the city of Ravenna, you might have just gone from serving a puppet Roman emperor to a barbarian general to a barbarian king, and nothing really changes. You work with the same kinds of records that you did beforehand. Um, you send the same kinds of letters and roughly the same forms. You're dealing with roughly the same kinds of political concepts. You can make the argument there that in those places, not much is changing. So is the, is it a falling empire? Is that a metaphor that even makes sense for us? You can make the argument no. Now, I would say if you take a step back and you don't lose the forest for the trees, like, yeah, there had been an empire. There had been central structures of governance that exercised control, that drew in taxes, that sent officials, that had standing armies, and that no longer existed. So I would say that's an important thing. Um, I think when you argue with the particulars of it, you're making important contributions to the broader discussion and your your understanding of the fall of the Roman Empire needs to be a nuanced one, but I would still say that it existed. Now, there's another school of thought that is that says that even if those things happened, they weren't all that important because they're set within a broader context of a long late antiquity. It's a concept that comes from a guy named Peter Brown who wrote a lovely book one of my very favorite works of history called uh, The World of Late Antiquity. And so Brown's argument is basically that you need to take the period from about 100 or 200 CE to the 8th century as a coherent period in its own right, that this is late antiquity, um, that instead of seeing a sharp break with the fall of the Roman Empire, you see a kind of a, an internally coherent social, cultural, and especially religious period that stretches on and on and on. And in this telling, Brown emphasizes the Eastern Mediterranean, where there was a lot of continuity. He emphasizes Egypt, Constantinople, the Eastern Roman Empire, the rise of Islam as as being part and parcel of this, uh, that this is a fundamentally different kind of way of looking at things. And if you are really invested in this concept of late antiquity, if you're really interested in religious change and cultural efflorescence, that is a narrative that you can tell. Like in that, And in that sense, you don't need to think about the fall of the Roman Empire. I had a historian of late antiquity yelling at me on uh, about this on Twitter the other day. She blamed me for uh, for people like Steve King, the Iowa congressman, uh, reactionary <laughs> Iowa congressman. You know, this is people like you are where they get this narrative of the of falling empires from. And you know, like to be fair, I don't know that Steve King is a listener to the fall of Rome. I don't think that he is, uh, though. Occasionally, an episode makes its way into white nationalist Twitter, and that's a whole thing. Um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, the reactionaries are real, folks. They they're white nationalists are real. So, um, but leaving that aside, like the point here is that even with something that is so self evidently true as the fact that there was a Roman Empire and then there wasn't. There are lots of ways that you can argue with the particulars, and there's also a broader, longer narrative into which you can set the fall of the Roman Empire, where it doesn't necessarily turn out to be an important thing. Now, I think that that's kind of myopic, and I think that you end up focusing, if you're really invested in this long, late antiquity, I think you end up missing out on whole chunks of regions that were not participants in any meaningful way in these broader uh, trends of social, cultural, and religious efflorescence. They were like doing their own thing, which was not good necessarily. Um, so I think you miss some things with that, but I understand where they're coming from. And I understand the objection to an overarching narrative of full. 
Yeah, although they have their own overarching narrative. And in a sense, that's where narrative is important and controversial, as we mentioned at first, where it's always going to provoke controversy. If you view Western Europe as critical, then fall becomes really important, right? This is, Mm -hmm. I think, where some of these objections come from. If you want to take something that approaches more of a global picture or you want to follow particular structures and processes and you don't care if they can leave one entire geographic region behind, then late antiquity can make a lot of sense. It's really where you're going to put your emphasis. And in part, as your uh, example (laughs) surrounding Steve King brings up, it's always going to be informed by our present concerns. It's always going to be informed by the sort of theoretical underpinnings we have. Now, it doesn't mean that every narrative and every person who tells a narrative have the exact same theoretical underpinnings. People have a remarkable capacity to use and abuse the work of people who they would probably scream in their face if they encountered them in person. At the same time, our present politics, our present day concerns are always going to influence what big stories we think are important or interesting or meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for me, the part of the reason that I've been so drawn to the fall of the Roman Empire is because I don't think that things are necessarily getting better. And that's part of the reason why right now what I'm working on is like the 14th and the 15th centuries where things were not getting better. You know, like these are <laughs> kind of dramatically not yeah, getting kind of dr- better. <laughs> pretty dramatically not getting better. Um, and for me, it feels important to understand that in a broad historical context, like the, and this is something we talked about in the very first episode of this show, that progress is not a given, that things are not necessarily going to get better, that they can and do get worse in meaningful ways, that like people die, population declines, there are wars that have terrible consequences for, for the people who are living through them. Like that these are, these things that seem so self-evident to me apparently are not anymore. So Yeah, and in part, that's where there's a couple of ways that that could work, though, right? On the one hand, if your big narrative is progress, then setting those things in it becomes speed bumps on the path to progress. Mm -hmm. You could also create a declensionist narrative in which things are not just not getting better, they're actively getting worse, and here's evidence of how it's happening. But you could also challenge it by saying, no, we'll throw out narrative altogether. There's there's no way in which narrative actually works. You just have these kind of disparate events that happen, and whenever you try to connect them, it leads to incoherence. So I think even if you say, you know, the, the big narrative I think that a lot of people hold, that, okay, over time, things are slowly but surely getting better, blah, 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 all that. It's one that you can challenge in a lot of different ways, either by erecting new narratives or by rejecting narrative altogether. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to talk about some of the consequences of doing that as we jump into the third section, right? Yep, absolutely. So we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll dig a little deeper into the benefits and drawbacks of narrative as a whole and where we stand on them. And we are back for our third and final segment where we're going to try to bring these different strands together to talk about how do we use narratives? What do we do with them? What does the path forward look like here? 
Yeah, and we got it a little bit at the end when we talked about your responsibility for Steve King, which, just for the record, Pat is, in fact, responsible for every single thing that Steve King has done and will ever do. Yeah, deeply responsible for anybody with a bad idea of the fall of the Roman Empire. I take personal responsibility Mm -hmm. for that. Yep, history matters, but in a really, really terrible way. (laughs) More seriously, though... I think the bigger point with narrative and the thing that has made people uncomfortable and has also provoked a lot of the tough disciplinary discussions we've had is the fact that it's always bound up with some of our political and social goals. Sometimes it's a bit of a stretch to get there. So one of the cases I know in the 17th century, as people were saying, how do you do a post-Marxist history? There's this one group called revisionists. They put a capital R in revisionist to distinguish themselves from the many other people who have used the same name. And they were loosely associated with Thatcherism in Britain, despite the fact that a pretty significant number of the participants in the movement were fairly anti-Thatcher in their personal politics. So it's one of these weird cases where a narrative or an anti-narrative stance can get bound up with things, even if it's not actually associated with them. But the narratives we choose really do inform some of the uses, misuses, abuses, whatever, of history that we have. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think this gets at the root of why I will make an explicit argument for why historians should re-engage with big narratives and why they should get better at the narrative form in general. Um, because it's, it's fine if you want to do kind of a synchronic, meaning like spread out over, over space and time, um, kind of thing for other historians, right? Because other historians are going to be able to follow the thread of your argument from place to place and time to time. And like, and I did this in my, in my dissertation too. Like I had a mostly synchronic, view of of what was happening within kind of a broad chronological framework. But that's fine for other historians because other historians are going to be reading your work for information and for overall argument, right? They're going to go to your work to find specific examples about specific things and they're going to your and they're going to your work to find what is your overall argument and how does that fit with other arguments that other people have made about this and related topics. That's why, that's why we read historiography generally is because we need it to tell us some specific things about some other specific things. Yeah. And it's, it's in some ways, this is where history writing is a bit weird. It's a technical literature that's meant to be accessible to people who are not going to read it as a technical literature. Yeah. And in some ways, this is where I agree with you. And I also disagree with you. I think that Sure, some historians should try to write narratives, and the more the better, because one of the things, and we talked about this a bit in the interims for every segment, narrative is always and inevitably wrong. Not because the people writing it are dishonest, or they're cheating, or they're dumb, or anything like that, but just by its nature, narrative will always be wrong, because it's going to ascribe one set of causes to a sequence of events or, or a or narrowed set of causes. Yeah. And in, in a very real sense in human affairs, things don't always happen in a perfectly sequential order. 
you often have a multiplicity of causes. It can become really difficult to actually figure out why one thing happens. And sometimes, really, you just have to conclude that we don't know and maybe can't ever know. Take the last presidential election as a perfect example of this. Why did Hillary Clinton lose? Did she lose because of broad structural socio socioeconomic forces that had led to a hollowing out of the middle class in large areas that she absolutely needed to win in order to win the presidency? Um, was it because of her personal failings as a leader um, that she was unable to run a kind of a coherent campaign that could address some of her some of her weaknesses as a candidate? Was there fighting among key campaign staff, and did their infighting sabotage the most qualified candidate ever? Uh, was it Russian interference with the election? Was it uh, the Comey letter? Two weeks out, was it a mass resurgence of racism that at least some people have called the white lash? These are all potential narratives that you could tell about the 2016 election. Was it was it the personal qualities of Donald Trump as a candidate that spoke directly in some deep-seated cultural way to large numbers of people that he then ended up winning? Was uh, was it the fact that Trump was a reality TV star with wide exposure? Um, was it a persona that he had crafted of the competent businessman? Um, was it that he was speaking to reactionary nationalist themes that and authoritarian themes that large numbers of Americans found appealing? Or did people just like that he was going to cut their taxes? Like, these are all narratives that you could draw, some of which focus on Trump, some of which focus on Clinton, some of which focus on the interplay between the two of them. That they have are, really different timescales too, yeah. right? Is it about processes that began in the post-war period or in the 1970s or in the 1990s? Or is it about a really kind of small set of events that go from roughly uh, the past eight years or so? These are all potential narratives that you could draw. And basically all of them have something to recommend them within the broader context of, of the issues that we're talking about. Like, you know, if you say, like, it's hard to walk and chew gum at the same time, like, <laughs> it's hard to weave all of those different causal factors together into something that resembles a coherent narrative. It's In fact, it's impossible to do so. You're going to have to make choices about which one you think is the most important. You're going to have to choose different evidentiary bases upon which to draw like from which you can draw support for your views um and that therein lies the problem with narrative as a whole that's something that happened last year and we're, you can see right now the process of fighting about these things is still ongoing mm-hmm. yeah so. exactly and and it's it's good that we're fighting about these things honestly because once you accept one narrative that becomes the thing that determines what you do next, right? When you have the narrative, when you have the truth of what really happened, uh, insofar as you ever get that, you wind up saying, all right, we've got our set of evidence. Now we're going to move forward. I think the fights are important if you don't, if you don't agree with the one narrative, if you don't agree with a narrative being the thing that should drive us all together. And so I'm very comfortable with lots of historians writing narrative. The other thing though, I, you know, as a pretty substantial consumer of books aimed at <laughs> other academics and specialist literature, I think that stuff is good, too. And it's yeah. necessary. And it has an important place. This is one of the things my constant unease when I sit at these conferences and hear historians talk about 
a return to narrative, the importance of narrative, there's a reason to push back against that as a form and to keep going with some of these other things. And there's also a reason to ensure, and we've talked about this a lot, that narrative doesn't just mean, that narrative can also include some of the really, really big narratives that are going to be always controversial, Mm -hmm. that are always going to incite mass fighting over whether or not there was a fall of the Roman Empire or a transition into a late antique world or things like that. Because this is, and I think this is a key point for historians to remember when we're talking about those big narratives, they are not, and as far as I can tell, and I would make this argument and support it, these argument, these big narratives are not for historians. They're for other people. They're for consumers of history on a broad scale who would like to know about really large, long-term kinds of things. Things that matter in history as a whole. Like, it matters that there was a Roman Empire and then there wasn't a Roman Empire. It matters that the capitalistic way of thinking and organizing economic affairs came into existence. It matters that the printing press was a communications revolution, even if we argue about the specifics of manuscript culture and how that bled in and the overlap between the two of them and how uh, printing existed alongside other forms of recording and memory. Like those are still like those specifics of that argument absolutely are things for historians to talk about and debate. But like, I think it's it's impossible for me to overstate how ridiculous it looks to somebody who isn't a historian who isn't embedded in that world to say like the Roman Empire didn't fall. Like of course it did. It's absurd to say that it didn't. <laughs> like the I you know, um I'm going to have to go back and edit out that F bomb I just dropped there. <laughs> but like but seriously, it's ridiculous. Like of course that happened. Of course there was a thing called capitalism that came into existence. Of course the printing press mattered. Like this is, these arguments are not for historians. If you want to argue about the particulars of that, you want to argue against the broad narrative, you want to prove it wrong in every particular, something can be wrong in the particulars and still right overall. And maybe being right about it overall matters more for an audience of non-historians. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to disagree a little bit. One, I think the broad narratives are actually important for historians because even if we hate them mm-hmm. they're the thing against which we rail sure mm-hmm. you need having an enemy always helps or it can help and if the big narrative is your enemy then that that in part is going to shape okay i heard this this is wrong how do i figure out how to prove it's wrong so it it does influence the yeah, choices sure. i think historians make in terms of the projects we choose the way we frame up our arguments, we're disproving the big narrative or we're reinforcing the big narrative. Yay. Mm. It doesn't, that's, it does shape the work we do. The other thing though, is I think those narratives themselves are mutable and that people who are not academic historians or did training, they're, people are capable of interrogating and challenging Mm -hmm. those narratives and they change over time. So in part, this is where I think you're right. It's good for historians to engage with it in part, because if we don't, people who are not historians are going to say, of course, Rome fell. It's ridiculous to think it didn't. On the other hand, if historians want to get that out of people's heads, the way to do that is to make a public case that it didn't fall. The way to do that is to go and hammer day in and day out. It didn't fall. It didn't fall. 
it didn't fall. Here's what happened. Yeah, here's it your, wasn't. If you want that to not be the narrative, then you need to come up with an alternative one that you can actively market to the public. And this comes back to something, you hit on something really important here. And that is that people are not dumb. Like the fact, like academic, you're not dumb, listeners. Yeah, yeah well, no, Thank I mean, like, I mean, in, in all seriousness, like, there's like part uh, the a lot of these debates about narrative in academia boil down to, well, I don't want to dumb things down. Like, a narrative is not inherently dumb. You are always making choices about what to include and what not to include in your discussion of these things. You're making choices about what counter arguments to are worth refuting and what argument, what counter arguments are not. Like, that is always going to be an element in these things. Um, but narrative is, it's an essential tool. It's not a tool that you can afford not to have. But with all, with all of that said, like you can include differing narratives within your, within your overall narrative of the, the rise of capitalism. You want to talk about the rise of capitalism? Sure. Like that's great, but you don't have to not talk about like forms of economic organization that were distinctly not capitalist or not animated by the same principles. Like you can always include these things and you can always say like within this broad overarching thing that we're talking about here, like there are many exceptions there. Like this didn't happen in the same way in different place in every place. Like uh, I did, I did a thing on state formation in late medieval Europe for, uh, for undergrads, for a history 102, like medieval civilization. And like, this is, these are undergrads who have just been taking a medieval civ class all semester. It's not like they have some deep background in this. But for that audience, I wasn't going to say, like, state formation is a thing that happened. It had these characteristics, blah, 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 blah. Here's the narrative. It's like, no, man. Like, there are plenty of counterexamples. In 1500, there are, like, despite 250 or 300 years of ongoing processes of, like, jurisdictional simplification and all of that, there are still 500 different self-governing political units in Europe in 1500. Like... So whatever process of state formation that you're talking about over the last 300 years obviously wasn't over, uh, had not been fully played out, did not apply everywhere. Like, but you don't have to, but, but the narrative is still matters. It's still important because in a lot of places, in more places than not, these things did happen. Yeah. And I think that you can tell a patchy narrative. Mm -hmm. You can tell one with fits and starts and directions that seem like they're going to work out and then fail. I think people are really very comfortable with those things. But I think this is where there's a real tension in how what academic history is, what history more broadly understood by people is, and what history as a tool for doing other kinds of things is. So for academics, we're a weird little niche of people, right? We exist in this odd kind of small very specific economy the rules that we have for what we produce where we produce it what counts and doesn't count are old very slowly transitioning in some ways with lots of fighting in literally every single direction it's a circular firing squad almost all the time Mm -hmm. um and we're just one set of producers of history on the other hand there's a lot of other people who are producing knowledge about the past. And as we have our own little rules about advancement, getting job security, getting tenure, things like that, they often create friction points between the broader world of people who care about the past or who try to produce knowledge about the past. 
And then there's that third category of history as we put it to use. You can just produce knowledge about the past as entertainment. Mm -hmm. History is a great form of entertainment. It's fun stories. Get to do a little bit of travel in your mind. It's great. I like it. It's one of the things that attracted me to doing history. I'm sure you, the, Mm -hmm. the same. At the same time, history is clearly critical in the stories we tell about why things happen, who we are, who counts in that we or doesn't count, and how people get included or not. It's really critical to so many things. But what's the history that's being drawn on? Is it that second category of kind of the broad production? Is it a small category of academic production? Is it not just history produced through consumption, but also through things like family myth and legend and storytelling and Other things forms that of more popular media, YouTube videos, uh, like whatever. Yeah. yeah. But this is where what exactly that history is becomes really tough. And as we think about these questions, there's no silver bullet. If we all started writing brilliant narratives, uh, it would probably help because we get some sweet royalty checks. But well, not that sweet. <laughs> Somewhat sweet royalty checks. Um, but it, it it's not going to change everything about history. It, it's, it's not going, going to change everything. It's not going to change everything about history. But I feel like that popular market of people would be better served if more people with deep training and exposure to uh, the kind of uh, the complexities of history we're able to speak more effectively to a broader audience. So if you look at who, for the most part, is writing the most popular works of history, it is basically journalists and other people who are writers, period, and not historians, who are writers first and not historians first. And, like, if more historians could write in the kind like, like, there's a reason those works sell. And it's because their authors know how to write a hook. They know how to, they know how to write a teaser. They know how to write blurbs. They know how to write narratives that are compelling to the reader. There's no reason why that form has to be left aside for, for professional historians. Like you can imitate the style and do a pretty good job of imitating the style without losing your evidentiary bases. Yeah. At the same time, I think there are somewhat distinct skill sets and it, it pays to collaborate. So a few, about a year ago, I was talking with a friend who did an MFA in creative nonfiction and she was working on a story and a kind of broader project that was going to include film and museum, really great stuff on a, and a kind of very, very nonconformist religious community, sort of a early new age community in Utah. And there was a point in which I was reading something she was writing, and we were talking about this, and there was just, we clearly had a different way of thinking through things. We had a different way of trying to process what was going on. We had a long discussion about it. And in the end, I benefited from reading someone who's really, really great writer, and I hope she benefited from hearing someone who's an inveterate nitpicker <laughs> about process change how individuals are working within this broader setting evidence and what you can do with it and not do with it so i think in part it's a diversity of tactics that we need if history is to be relevant yeah but i want to push back on that like wouldn't it be better if as graduate students we had taken a year-long course in how to in in how to be better writers like 
because this is all stuff like I've spent a lot of time now writing for popular audiences, right? Like, thank God for mixed martial arts, because like (laughs) I've written literally hundreds of thousands of words for non-academic audiences over the years. Like I've, I've written, I've had to write features and I've had to write hooks and I've had to write blurbs. And that stuff has made me better at communicating deep academic knowledge to a popular audience. There was no reason though, like for on an a priori basis, why I had to do that on the side through mixed martial arts. Like that's, those are teachable skills that you could learn in a classroom, like that you could learn by having people who know how to write, teach you how to write. Like those are, and uh, like, those are skills that are available and out there to be taught. You don't have, it's like writing is a, is a teachable thing and forms of writing are teachable things and like practice makes perfect, but like you need to, historians could stand to be more familiar with those formats and how to work within them. Unquestionably. Although in all these cases, it's then asking what should this small subgroup, which is academic historians, what should our relationship be to this broader thing that is history? And I think that's a huge discussion that people are having within the profession. My one consistent anxiety, and this is one that you've talked about as well, is that those conversations are not always informed by really thinking about a popular audience. Mm-hmm. So I think one thing we might end with is asking a question to you, the listeners. When you read history, if you like history podcasts, if you like historical films or fiction or novels, what is it that attracts you to them? And, and what are the kinds of things you would read? If you saw a movie about something and were really interested in it, if you read a popular history and were really interested in the topic, would you go out and read academic works if you could get access to them and weren't paywalled behind a million things on JSTOR or something like that? What would you consume and how would you interact with it? We're really curious. And honestly, I think it's a big question and one that historians should be asking more to people who consume history generally. What do you read? What do you like? And what can we do to reach you? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great note to end on. Well, this has been fun. This has been a good discussion. Um, and uh, narrative, man, what do we do with it? How do we use it? Uh, it's It's an important thing. You know, like it's hard to overstate how much this matters for history as a whole, for how much it matters for, you know, academic historians. Like, because let me, let me one, make one final note here. Like with the structure of how academic history is working right now, where there are fewer and fewer tenure track jobs, there's going to be a smaller and smaller pool of people producing those specialized works as time goes on. And part of the reason for that is because academic history has not done a great job of justifying its existence. This is true of the humanities in general, but it's real easy for university trustees with MBAs uh, and and the kind of decision makers in that in those regards to say, no, we're going to cut your budget because you're not attracting undergrads. And part of the reason why academic history is not attracting undergrads is because it has not made good arguments for why the work that it's doing is useful for why undergrads should do that for why for what skills specifically history is teaching that that can't be picked up elsewhere so these are these are matters of more than just like concern for public discourse it's about how does academic history survive as an ecosystem and to be really corny how does history matter <laughs> <laughs> exactly on that note keith where can the people find you people can find me on twitter at kd plimers 
Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA. Thanks for joining us today, guys. This is real fun. All right. Talk to you next time.